You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. How many threads connect us to storytellers, whether an author or a singer, songwriter? On this episode, James Wolfe, author of The Man in the Corduroy Suit, joins us. And then after the break, singer-songwriter Pete Mancini stops by. Crime fiction lover wrote this. Steadily, quietly, with the stealth of an MI5 agent, James Wolfe has been building his reputation as a creator of spy stories. James Larry Davidson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's lovely to talk to you. So here's what I'd like to do, because I'm a big fan of spy stories and espionage. And I know that somebody named John, David John Moore Cornwell, wrote as John Le Carré, which is a great story because he wanted a name that sounded international. If you don't mind, how did you pick your name for writing this book? Oh, I, I, I struggle to remember exactly what, what I did. I think I wrote down a, a long list of names and then spent several days chewing it over and, and thinking... Which which one sounded better? And I think I, it was nothing nothing more sophisticated than I thought. Wolf was a good name for a thriller writer, but but actually having having picked it and now published a few books, I realise now that that puts my books usually very low down alphabetically in the bookstore. You know, you go to the very last right. shelf of of the fiction section and right to the bottom, and and there the books are. So actually, strategically, it might have been uh, an unwise choice. So I'm also a big fan of what my guests read when they were growing up. So along the way, who did you read? And I believe you read somebody named George Pelicanos, who I interviewed in the past, who has gun violence in his background, a fascinating man, also involved in television. So along the way, who did you read before you started writing? Well, I, I read mostly crime fiction, actually. Uh, and I, I didn't and still don't read a, a huge amount of spy fiction. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I, Elmore Leonard was a was a, a big love of mine growing up. Even right. before that, I think Robert B. Parker, I, I loved his Spencer novels. Um, but you mentioned George Pelicanos, Richard Price also, I think, is a wonderful crime novelist, a wonderful stylist, Very much a so. real artist yeah. with the language. Um, so I, I would say it's mostly crime writers, and I would say it's mostly American crime writers. So I'm going to reference Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I've done this in the past, but what he said was, and I'm curious for your response, and we'll go there shortly. He said, we have three lives, public life, a private life, and a secret life. Let's first talk about you. Public life, private life, secret life, and then let's extrapolate from that and go to the characters in your book, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. Well, I guess the public life would be my life as a novelist. So I've written three books now. Um, uh, I started, well, I, I wrote a novel in my 20s that wasn't picked up and I, I couldn't find an agent for. And it was a very useful apprenticeship, but but didn't ultimately take me anywhere. And I had a, a pause when I went into government service and, and worked in intelligence for the British government for, for about 15 years. Um, but but my public life, as James Wolfe started um, with my first book, Beside the Syrian Sea, and then and then the follow-up, and then this latest one. Um, so I guess that's the that's the public persona. Um, and then privately, in terms of who you know who I am, 
I grew up in Beirut in Lebanon, so I was there until the age of nine. We had a very dramatic uh, exit from there in 1982 when the Israelis invaded. So we were we were sort of caught in the middle of a of a war zone with Palestinian militias and and Lebanese army and Israeli um, fighters. You know gun battles raging on the streets around us. We were evacuated and, and uh, returned back to England. Um, and then I studied Arabic and Middle Eastern studies at university, uh, went overseas again, lived in various places, including Damascus and Cairo and Beirut. Um, and then, as I say, um, dabbled in novel writing unsuccessfully and then, and then went into government service. So what about the part of the secret life? That's always going to remain secret? Well, you know, I think it comes out in kind of crooked, unexpected ways. I mean, the, the books are, uh, you know, it's very important to me that everything that happens in the books could possibly happen in real life. Um, but I think a lot of the the actual detail of, of what happened in, in those 15 years, the things I was involved in, definitely has to, has to remain secret, unfortunately. Um, and, that, and that's not to say that it was it was all... You know, exciting life and death stuff. As as I think, well, as I hope comes across in my books, I think I'm more interested in in character, in in human relationships, um, in in even in the bureaucracy of intelligence agencies, in the way they communicate. You know, with with themselves, the kind of language they use, how they make decisions, um, all that sort of stuff is the stuff that interests me, rather than the you know, the, the car chases and the fistfights. So for your primary characters, and we can delve into that a little bit later if you don't mind, that's what fascinates me. Once again, the breakdown, public life, private life, secret life. The last part of the equation, secret life for some of your characters, makes me as a reader wonder what is going on, and that kind of drives the story along. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, as much as I like... Uh, and enjoy a lot of genre writing. Where, where I feel it it sometimes falls down is in its desire to wrap things up neatly and provide a a tidy conclusion. Right. Um, and really, that is, you know, it, it's about as unreflective of the intelligence world as it's possible to get. You know, there's all sorts of stuff that goes into spy novels that is, you know, realistic. You know, whether some it's it's surveillance or installing a bug or recruiting an agent. I mean, this stuff goes on and happens and people write about it. But the way that spy stories, that real spy stories end, is often very inconclusive. You know, you don't really know what happened to that person. You don't know what they went on to do. You don't know if their motives were sincere. You just have to, you just have to uh, make, you know, place a bet based on the information that's available to you. I mean, the, the, the analogy of a puzzle is one that's often used in the right. intelligence world. Uh, you know, overused, but but the, you know the idea is you you never get a complete picture of a person, of a set of events. You just put the pieces together that you're able to collect, and from that you make an assessment and you say, well, I think based on history and based on various other factors, this is the likeliest thing that I can see in front of me. Um, and, and so I think when I was writing this book and all the books, I wanted to reflect something of that uncertainty about characters, about their motives about why they behave the way they do uh, and about their endings, you know, what they go on to do afterwards. So here's, um, I don't want everything to feel neatly tied up at the end. So here's one of my takeaways, which fascinates me, even what's going on today, that if you look at the world of intelligence, 
I think it's a zero-sum game. That both entities, you know, whatever country you're working for or working against, ultimately kind of walk away with, we did what we did, but where do we get with all of this? Yeah, I think that's a very perceptive comment. I mean, I think there is a, a, a public perception of, of intelligence as being, uh, you know, incredibly, <laughs> incredibly incisive, incredibly effective. Um, I think it was Stella Rivington, who was a former director general of, of MI5, and she commented in her memoirs that, uh, you know, when she went to dinner parties, this is after her retirement, she'd go to dinner parties and, and sit down opposite you know, various people who would all expect her to know their secrets. Right. She was like, you know, you're a, you know, whatever you are, whatever the person was, a, a business person or a journalist. And she's like, we, you know, it's, it's the last thing on our agenda. It's, you know, there's nothing that we know about. These agencies struggle to know, you know, the, the, the inside details of terrorist plots and, you know, Russian plots and things like that. They really have no time, energy or resource to look into sort of, the wider stuff and you know history tells us that these agencies are very bad really at spotting stuff they they're big creaking bureaucracies right and they're, they're built a certain way and they pivot quite slowly and they move and they adapt quite slowly um so that, so certainly they are probably less effective than the average person on the street believes so let's reset i'm larry davidson this is the podcast awful periscope my guest is james wolf the book is called The Man in the Corduroy Suit. So when, when you actually release this, this podcast and this conversation, thank you, by the way, for joining us. People are going to hear your voice. They're going to hear, for better or worse, my voice. But the one thing that fascinates me is we can read descriptions on the printed page. In your head, do you know what your characters actually sound like? Well, that's a very interesting question. I don't think I do is the answer. I do, I'm trying to, I'm struggling to remember now whether I've, well, I, I know that the main character, Leonard Flood, in this book is from the north of England, so I can imagine a northern accent. But I have to say, when I write the dialogue and when I see him in my head, I don't, I don't hear his accent. So that may be a surprising answer, but it's uh, an honest one. Well, there are two schools of thought. I think of Lee Child describing Reacher in all the books that he wrote, by the way, in mm -hmm. Lynch Man too. And he totally describes what Reacher looks like. I know other writers that don't want to describe what they look like. They want the reader to fill in the blanks. So those two different schools of thought fascinate me. I believe that you give really good descriptions of your characters. Is that part of what you do to create a really strong story? Yeah, I think that I think that that the distinctiveness of the characters is is important. I, I also think I I don't quite believe in the you know the, perhaps the kind of nineteenth century Victorian style of novel writing where the the author knows everything and the author is omniscient and right, right. there's this kind of godlike voice that hovers over the novel that knows everything and ultimately explains everything. So I I like a novel that that feels like it's full of kind of you know fragments and glances and you know you you kind of half see something and half don't see it and maybe that thing is contradicted a bit later on um i do have a strong sense of some of my characters physicality um and so uh, i do think it's important um at the beginning to really 
you know, nail that character to the wall for the reader. So they really have a strong sense of what that person looks like, at least. I believe a lot of writers like to play in the best possible way with the readers. And I think what you did for me, I can only speak for myself, you peel a lot of layers away from the onion. And then I think, aha, I know where you're going. And then you start peeling, some, peeling away some more layers. And I thought that was part of the most interesting part of the book. Uh, I understand. No, I'm not so sure. Now I understand. No, I'm not so sure. And this takes place from the very beginning when you have a character right now in the hospital in a coma to, as you say, with an ending that I really like because we're not so sure what's going on. Yeah, I, I, I like the idea of, of a novel that somehow takes the form of an intelligence file. I mean, if you've, you can kind of imagine what an intelligence file would look like. So you've got a kind of, you know, you got a buff folder and you turn it over and the first thing you see in front of you is, let's say it's a, it's a transcript of a phone call between two people. Um, and you read it and you kind of glean from it that, okay, this is why the file has been started because there's a conversation between these two people and they seem to be discussing something like, I don't know, uranium enrichment or something like that. Right, right. And then you turn over the page and the second document in the file is a surveillance report. And you infer from that, okay, right, they've gone from the first document and they've put a surveillance tail on one of these people. And this is what it seems to tell me. And it seems to tell me that the, this person is frequenting this particular shop. And then you send an officer into that shop to try and find out what the person could be doing there and so on. So I, I, I like that sense you get from a file of, of a story. You know, it doesn't move cleanly from section to section, from part to part. You know, there are little bumps along the way. Um, and so I, I appreciate what you say. I mean, I, I definitely was hoping that the reader would feel that there are some kind of speed bumps on the way, that this isn't just a smooth process of learning everything there is to learn about these characters and their motives and their lives. There, there are uncertainties. There are kind of, you know, unexpected turns in the road. So on a previous episode, Alma Katz, who was a guest of mine, former CIA analyst, and she had to get, even her books or novels, uh, Red Widow and Red London, she had to vet a lot of stuff. So based on your background and what you're creating, was there a vetting process going on for you as a writer? Yeah, absolutely. So everything I write has to go um, through a vetting process. It's a little bit, I think, less uh, formal than the uh, than the American system. I think actually the Americans have probably done it better than us Brits um, because it seems as though it's it's quite transparent and the the writers who are submitting the work kind of know what the process is and, and know what they're getting into. In the UK, it's a very, it's a very kind of appropriately mysterious process. You, you send off your, uh, you send off your manuscript and then, you know, you might not hear back. You don't know what the timeline is. Sometimes you get back a really kind of mystifying set of requests right. that you cannot fathom why they've asked you to remove this or, or remove that. But you just have to go along with it. Um, it's it's a frustrating part of the process, but it's unfortunately necessary. So in the world of intelligence, how does Great Britain view how Americans deliver their intelligence and the intelligence community and access they have? Do they look down? Do they share stuff? Do they think that we do it better? How does that whole process work from intelligence agency to intelligence agency? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, America's the big beast in the jungle, very much so. Uh, and there's been, uh, uh, you know, a lot of public commentary about the fact that, you know, that the, the level of support that the US is providing to, the, to Ukraine at the moment, militarily, but also no doubt behind the scenes in the intelligence world as well, is, is, is huge. And America just has a scale uh, and a size of resource that allows it to really dominate this space. So I think among you, you know, British spies, I think there's a huge amount of respect and admiration, very close partnership. I think that, you know, the, the Five Eyes partnership, right. that it, you know, has the UK and the US at its core, but also Canada and Australia, and New Zealand, all these countries work together very closely. You know, they share a lot of information, a lot of data, but they also cooperate on, you know, sharing techniques and running operations together. So I think the relationship is, is close. It's very positive. I think there's always, you know, a little layer of, you know, sometimes more than a little layer of, of kind of not mistrust exactly, but, you know, at the end of the day, each country is looking out for its own interests. Um, and so I think that's definitely part of it, but I think, you know, there's, there's respect and, um, you know, a, a lot of positive feeling towards the U S agencies in the UK. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. My guest who you're listening to right now is James Wolfe, the author of this third book in a trilogy, The Man in the Corduroy Suit. So let's put into context, and you probably know much more about how this happened. I have my own theories about Russian, Russian involvement in Brexit and also the Russian invasion of Ukraine. When we go back and look at the timeline of your book, and you can set that up, in a sense, was that the good old days? Uh, well, uh, I, I mean, I guess it was. I guess it was. It, it is all connected. I mean, the, the the book starts with a with a poisoning or a suspected poisoning of a retired, recently retired British intelligence officer, an MI five officer who was a, a a vetting officer. So, someone, you know, vetting is a is a crucial part of the work, but it's not frontline work. It's it's checking the candidates. Uh, you know, are of a suitable character, that they don't have any vices that they've hidden, you know, that they're not susceptible to blackmail or something like that. So so this vetting officer is is poisoned. And and uh, the main character, the protagonist, is asked to carry out an investigation into that and, and does so. And, you know, without giving too much away, does discover some kind of Russian involvement, although it perhaps turns out not to be exactly what we might have expected. But I think, you know, there's, there's, whenever you talk about a, a poisoning, particularly a poisoning in the UK, you know, we, we start thinking of, of Sergei Skripal and, right, right. Um, you know, uh, all, all, all these other poisonings are, uh, you know, you, you can join the dots, I think, from those to things like Ukraine. They're, they're, they're you know, they're acts that, you know, they're violating the sovereign territory of, uh, of another country. They're acts of aggression. And, and, you know, I think Putin in, in doing those things was seeing how far he could go and seeing what response he would get. And I think it was the lack of a, a suitably robust response that encouraged him to go into Ukraine and, and made him think that he could get away with it, which, you know, fortunately has seems to seems not to be the case. Now, in the U.S., I'm thinking about NYPD because I live in New York. They have something called IA, where the police officers in a sense, investigating potentially wrongdoing by other police officers. You have a character named Charles Remett. 
he's involved in the gatekeepers. Is this made up or is this a real thing in terms of how spy agencies work where spies, no pun intended, spy on other spies? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's it's real. I mean, the, the name gatekeeping is is one that I, I came up with myself, so it, it's not called that. But, you know, it, when you think of the history of UK spies and you go back to the Cambridge spy ring and, and Kim Philby and all that, you know, we've we've uh, the, we've got a lot of of great things in our tradition but we've got a lot of embarrassing things in our tradition as well um and i think any country any set of agencies that that you know has in the past made mistakes on the scale of right. kim philby needs to be very alert these days to the kind of people uh not just the kind of people who join which is what the vetting department does but once they join you know making sure that they're behaving in an appropriate way so absolutely any any agency, and I think this is probably true of every single country in the world that has an intelligence agency, will have a team of whatever size that is looking inwards and is is thinking about its own officers and which ones are behaving in an unusual way or spending more money than they than they earn or drinking too much or whatever. So, so it is a huge part of an, of an agency that it has to maintain its defences because really the worst thing that could happen is that the opposition recruits someone who works inside an agency. I mean, the, the, the potential that person has to steal damaging intelligence uh, is, is huge. I mean, it can cause damage that, that is, is, takes years and years and years to fix. So here's another one of my takeaways. I thoroughly enjoyed the book. That my overview is, or was, what you know what you think you know, and what you have a lot of questions because you really don't know. And I think it's applicable to a lot of the characters in a sense there's a, a big manipulation going on, especially with Leonard Floyd, and you can amplify on that, and Charles Remnant, that it's almost who's the mouse, who's the cat, who's chasing who, and what's really going on in your story. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. That's a good way of, of putting it. I mean, I, I you know, without, without going into too many spoiler details that the the plot the the you know the, what you i think when you start the book you expect to see a certain set of things because you know you've got a poisoning uh and you've got suspected russian involvement and you've got a a young talented officer who is sent to investigate if you look at that then, then i think you have a certain set of expectations oh i know how this is going to go you know he's going right. to he's going to figure out that and then that will be what's happening there, and you know, you 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 see that. But in in reality, I hope that almost every expectation is turned on its head. You know, not not only is the, you know, is is the poisoning or is the 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 events that led up to the poisoning are not quite what you'd expect. Um, the the person in, involved is perhaps not quite who you expect. Even the investigator, the person who is is sent to carry out the investigation finds himself in in a very unexpected position that changes his world. Um, and I think you end up, or I hope you end up at least at the end of the book, um, in a very different place than you thought you would. So I'm going to mention one of the characters. She's central to the story. When you first meet her, she's in a coma in a hospital after being poisoned. And the way you set that up and what happens to her was really interesting too. And she made a decision after suffering a personal loss, that she's going to put her career over her personal life. How many times have you seen that 
in the world that you're involved in? Well, I, I think she, she's a very stark example of that. And certainly I haven't, you know, she's, she's a fictional character and her, her character and her story and her motives uh, are all ones that I've, I've made up. But I do think that, um, I do think that it's a profession that you can kind of lose yourself in or lose a sense of perspective in. Um, you know, I think, I think that some people approach it as though it is almost akin to joining the priesthood. You right, know, it's, right. it's, uh, it's, it's vocational, yes, but also you're entering a secret world, you're being inducted into it, there are secrets. Um, you know, pe people really take that to heart. Um, and, and I think I've certainly seen people who've really disappeared down that rabbit hole and, uh, uh, and you know, it's taken a bit of time for them to come up to the surface again afterwards. So I'm a big fan of how the media portrays the world that you understand. I'm going to mention some programs, and I don't know if you're familiar with them or not, but one of the programs ran for many seasons was called The Americans with Kerry Russell and, and mm. Rufus Sewell, and I love that. The one that I really liked, because it's based on a novel by Mark Herron, is Slow Horses. Does that world really exist? Because it's where people are kind of, no pun intended, put out to pasture because of some of the things they did went haywire. Uh, uh, it, it doesn't exist uh, in the form that, that he depicts it. Um, but having said that, I think it's a, I think it's a brilliant idea. And it's a, it's a, very, it's a very clever way uh, of of kind of setting setting up the spy world and setting up this group of characters who are outside it. Um, I think it's a it's a kind of setup that's very rich in tension and right. and drama right. and and comedy, of course, as well. But no, I mean, you know, as in any big organization, there are people who shine and there are people who sadly don't shine. So you know, people will move up and people move down and people move sideways. Um, all of that is true, but but the kind of you know, Bolshen from the building <laughs> into another building where the plumbing doesn't work and and so on and so forth. Uh, that doesn't happen as as kind of charming and comedic as it is. James Wolf, it's my opinion that fiction allows you to be more truthful than nonfiction. Based on your experiences, in a sense, can you be more truthful in writing novels? Well, I mean, I think so, which is why I've chosen to write novels. Um, but but I think maybe there's something in the character of people who write novels and people who are drawn to read novels. There's something in their character that that um, is drawn to complexity and ambiguity. Um, a, a, you know, and there's also a, a deep sense of curiosity about other people and, and what makes them tick and, and, and so on and so forth. I, I certainly feel very confused when I look at the world. I don't feel that I have very many strongly held opinions. Um, uh, and so I think fiction for me is is a place where truth resides. I, I think I'm more comfortable with the kind of the, the gentle and shifting right. type of truth that you find in fiction rather than the kind of black and white truths that you find in nonfiction. So, James Wolfe, before we let you go, I try to end every segment in a sense a chance to criticize me. So, what did I miss? What did I get wrong in terms of our conversation? Well, I, I wouldn't dream of criticizing you after the lovely conversation we've had. So, I, I'd, 
I, 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 I don't think you've got, um, I don't think you've got anything wrong. I mean, I think there, there is, um, I think there is an, an aspect of a very important part of understanding the, the spy world is, is, you know, thinking about any large organization and how it operates, um, and thinking about, uh, you know things like the 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 queue in the cafeteria and thinking about the the struggle to get your expenses paid back and thinking about the holiday allowance and things like that that's where i think a lot of untapped drama and comedy exists in the spy world in in all of those sort of details um um but certainly, certainly, that isn't something that you um, that you were uh, wrong about. It's just something that I I think um, uh, could be discussed more often when people look at the world of spies. All right. So you said it. You have to come back again. There's no doubt about I'd love it. To. And we'll follow up. <laughs> we'll follow up. Last quick question with a quick answer. What are, what's next for you? Because it's the third book in a trilogy. I really want to know what you're working on. Well, I should say that, you know, I, st I wrote the first book thinking it'd be a standalone and then I wrote the second thinking I'll just do two and then this, then the third one came. But I am adamant that that is, the, the trilogy is done. Um, and, I, and I'm just at the first stages of, of writing a new standalone book. But I, I think at some point as well, I have an idea for a non-espionage book that I'd like to write. So I, I hope I'll have the opportunity to branch out and, you know, get away from the spies for a while. So here's a shout out. I believe there, there are many good podcasts out there. Another great podcast is Spyberry, hosted by Shane Wally. So if you like this kind of conversations, also check out Spyberry. After the break, singer-songwriter Pete Mancini stops by. I'm Larry Davidson. Be right back. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Stand to sit through another first date. Your 
rush to push your magic button Let the stars choose your fate You look so good at golden hour Savor the scene for it all turns out Sell the world you can't revise Cover the bruises that you want to strung out on admiration now I just don't feel the same You look so good at golden hour Savor the scene for it all turns out Sell the world you carefree vibes Cover the bruises that you want to Welcome back to the podcast, Powerful Periscope, and that is Pete Mancini. Pete, it's been a while. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. All right. So, day before, you were down in Georgia with Jimmy Webb. You're now here with me. I know it's a bunch of steps down, but it's good to see you again. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm just happy to be home, and um, it's always great to be talking with you. So, uh, no steps down at all. Just... Uh, Steps uh, northward, I suppose. <laughs> Thanks. So if you don't mind, because I know you've had very strong opinions over the years. I used to follow you, and I used to love what you wrote and sharing your thoughts. You just came back from Georgia. Um, what's the scene down there besides the music scene? Because um, we know what's just transpired with the grand jury down there, and the world has been turned upside down in a sense. Well, um, I only got to see a small part of Georgia for a short amount of time. I was in Decatur. Uh, we played two shows at Eddie's Attic back-to-back. Uh, -back. Um, we're sold out, and it was a great time. A lot of good vibes in the room. So I didn't really get the lay of the land in Atlanta, per se. But, um, yeah, you know, I was watching the news in the hotel room, and I was like, you know, it's going to happen probably tomorrow. So I might be in Atlanta for, right. <laughs> for the indictments. And uh, I got home, turned on the TV, and then around, I think, 8 o'clock last night, that was when they... Um, they dropped. So yeah, so it was a big day. They finally it dropped, but I could I fell asleep. So they didn't actually release it in the press conference with the attorney general in there. General. Oh, there. I was up. I watched the whole thing. Oh, so okay. So when midnight <laughs> happened, you know, it, it's 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 history. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the outcome is going to be, but based on what's transpired over the with the former president Trump, this is totally unprecedented. I mean, there's no way around it. It's unprecedented. Mm -hmm. So if you don't mind, let's catch up. It's been a few years since you came to join us on the podcast. What has happened with your life and your career? Well, I think last time uh, we spoke, I was still in Butcher's Blind. And uh, since then, I have uh, gone solo, I guess. I, um, I put out a few solo records. 
Um, in 2017, I put out my first album, Foothill Freeway. Uh, and then in 2019, I put out my second album, Flying First Class. And then in 2021, I released Killing the Old Ways, which was produced by Matt Patton of the Drive-By Truckers. And things have been, um, you know, I mean, we we lived through the pandemic. Right. And that was, that mm-hmm. was pretty crazy. And, um, yeah, you know, now I'm uh, just getting back to kind of where I was and in terms of momentum and gigs and, and, and playing out. And uh, I started working for uh, Jimmy Webb in 2021, and, and that has been incredible. And a lot of good things have happened, and, uh, but it's been, a, it's been a long ride. We've, we've lived through a lot of history, like you mm-hmm. were saying, since mm-hmm. we last spoke. And, yeah, lots to discuss. So I just got off the phone yesterday with my brother. And I told him you were coming in. He knows who you are. And you know who we started talking about? Because I mentioned he just came back from working with Jimmy Webb. And Jimmy Webb's wife, Laura, mm-hmm. has the most startling blue eyes that I've ever seen. And my brother said the same thing. Because she used to do stuff on WLIW 21 here in the metropolitan area. And... Those eyes. I don't know if he was ever inspired to write a song about her eyes. I don't know if you ever met her, but that, I mean, they stand out. Well, I don't want Jimmy to kick my ass, so I probably won't, uh, (laughs) (laughs) probably won't write a song about Laura's eyes. But yeah, no, Laura is awesome. And um, our friend, mutual friend, Norm Pruslin, she asked Norm if uh, he knew anybody that could help out with some tech projects and things like that. And, um, yeah, I, I ended up getting the call, and then I, I went out there and met Jimmy and Laura, and, you know, we hit it off right away, and we've been, you know, making things happen ever since. I, uh, I've i been doing some tour management and some uh, promo stuff. So let's, let's, great. let's talk about that. What do you mean you've been doing tour management? What, what does that entail? So, uh, you know, it's traveling with Jimmy and making sure everything is, uh, you know, up to code, per right. se. right. And uh, I've I've gotten to open for Jimmy a number of times, and that's been a real honor. to To play for Jimmy's fans is, you know, it's an incredible thing. So, just to get to know the guy and uh, his music, and just to hang out and play shows with him, it's been it's been incredible. So, what kind of an audience is he drawing? He's been around for a long time. He's MacArthur Park is the big one, correct? One of the big ones. One of the big ones. You convince other ones, but who's coming to the concerts besides to see you? Well, I mean, everyone's there to see Jimmy. Let's be let's be honest. Okay. But uh, you know, people have been. I've been getting a great response as a opening for him. And um, but yeah, Jimmy, um, his audience skews older because you know that's when he had all the big hits. Right. And right. a lot of people. A lot. I, I work the merch table after the show, and people come up and they say, "Man, that was the the Fifth Dimension record, up, up and away. That was the first right. album I ever right. bought." Yeah. People are leaving the show saying that was a spiritual experience. You know, this was these songs were the soundtrack to my life. And I think that's what makes Jimmy's music so special is that, you know, he's been on several different charts, you know, and uh, he's aff- he's had all these different hits and they've affected so many people's lives, whether they realize it or not. You know, Jimmy's the man behind the songs. So, you know, it's it's been really cool. I, I just thought about this. And when you said the word spiritual, there are two things that reach me in the soul of my being that I almost can't describe. And they're, they're different, but they're the same. The first thing that gets to me is kindness towards animals. And I, that, because I'm an animal lover, especially dogs. Mm-hmm. But the second thing that penetrates me very deep, almost where I can't verbalize, is 
is what you do is music. I think music is so special. It's signposts. It's, it's nostalgic, but it takes us back to another time and place that is extremely personal. I think um, you hit the nail on the head there. I think the best music captures the imagination. And um, Jimmy's song, Wichita Lineman, which Glenn Campbell recorded, right. um, that's one of those songs that, you know, it's, it, it has just enough space in it in the narrative and the, and the song structure where you can imagine yourself in that situation or you could feel the way that the narrator felt in that situation. And it, it allows you to kind of unlock your imagination. And um, I think that's what truly great songs do. And it's something for me as, you know, a songwriter, aspiring songwriter, right, but, uh, right. you know, I, I'm trying to capture that feeling. You know, I think Tom Petty in those big choruses, you know, he, he right. captured that. And, you know, I, I, I chase that. That's what I aspire to as a songwriter. We end every episode, we're not there yet, by the way, Leonard Cohen's song, Hallelujah, and Katie Lang's version of that is, knocks me out, especially when she did the memorial concert in Montreal for him. So that's another reason why I can put that on repeat, repeat, and repeat, and every single time I'm sitting there, I'm just going, I, I'm like, once again, I can't describe it, but it touches me in such a way that's almost primal. And that's the beauty of a lot of things that you do. So talk about the beauty of a lot of things you do. The next song I think we're going to do is, and if you want to move things around, feel free, A Law of the River. Yeah, so um, recently, um, I think in April of this year, I released an EP um, of five new songs that I recorded at home. It's called The Commonwealth Sessions Volume 1. And this was an outlet for some songs that were left over after um, my last LP, which was Killing the Old Ways. And there were songs that I liked and that I wanted to record, but I, you know, they didn't, it's not that they didn't make the cut, it's just that I still, they were kind of misfit songs. And Golden Hour, which I just played, that was right, one, right. one of the songs from that EP. So this song, Law of the River, it came about over the pandemic when we didn't really have a lot of places to go for a while there, so. The basement, we all went to the basement. Yeah. You know, um, it was a crazy time, but um, I watched a lot of documentaries and I saw one on the law of the river, which are the laws that govern the Colorado River. Right. And I thought it was an interesting turn of phrase. So I wrote this song from the viewpoint of the river. And uh, yeah, it goes like this. I've seen life and death, the rise and the fall of nations and beasts. In stillness and squall There were laws of the land Before man made a claim And sold off my lifeblood For his own gain The law of the river Flows deep and wide You won't miss the river Until it runs dry The law of the river Ain't for you to decide You're just leaves on the stream in the ocean of time The concrete canals will turn back to dust Long after Hoover's dam finally goes bust You keep drilling the land and you bleed the earth dry Can't put out a fire with money and lies 
Love the river flows deep and wide You won't miss the river until it runs dry Love the river ain't for you to decide You're just leaves on the stream in the ocean of time They're setting their ways They pray in the dry times But it won't bring the rain Life cut through mountains Of gravel and stone Carve my name on the face Of the land that they stole Love the river Flows deep and wide You won't miss the river Until it runs dry Love the river ain't for you to decide You're just leaves on the stream in the ocean of time Just leaves on the stream in the ocean of time Just leaves on the stream in the ocean of time Beautiful, beautiful. So if I ask you about a genre, what is American music? How would you describe that and where do you fit in terms of genres? Well, American music, uh, I think the definition, I mean, at its most simple is, you know, music with roots from here, from America. And uh, that's blues, that's jazz, that's rock and roll, that's everything that's happened here. It's hip-hop is now celebrating 50 50 years. Yeah, 50 years of hip-hop. I mean, it's everything. It's, you know, American music, it's it's stuff that happened here. And, um, but... I kind of traffic in the the world of Americana, which I I like. You know, I like that term because I think it's anything with roots, anything with roots in American music, and um, you know, I take it from country music, folk music, um, rock and roll, like right. I said. So right. it, it it's all a big stew, and it it it's whatever you put your your stamp on it, and um, it, it allows. It actually, I think there's a lot of freedom in that label for me because I, I just, you know, I have a wide ranging record collection, punk rock, classic, you know, just so much different stuff. And um, it all goes into the music I make. So you talk about the music you have. How do your roots spread out so you can grow as a singer songwriter? Well, for me, songwriting, it, it, it's one of the great joys of my life. And I think. It's something that that's always on and I'm always chasing that next song and that next lyric. And it's it's been I've kind of refined my approach over the years. And um, yeah, just in terms of influences that I, I've had, um, you know, Jeff Tweedy inspired me, Jeff Tweedy of Wilco, to, to write songs in the first place. And that whole world of, of the Americana movement of the 90s, the alt country movement and everything that the branch from that tree has spawned. You know, I, I feel like I'm just standing in its shade and I'm just grateful to to be making music. And uh, I make music that that I like, that I would want to listen to. And I hope someone else wants to listen to it too. This is why you're much more talented than I am because here's where I'm going to go because it's on my list of questions. And I listen to a podcast called Smartless. 
And I, I love it because I like to listen to people that are much better at doing what, what they do than I do. And they're doing live broadcasts now where they go various places in the country. And then we're in Chicago and in front of a huge audience because they have a big following and do a lot of merch, by the way. It's part of the equation. Nice. So they bring on Andy Richter on. And then later on, you'll never guess who they bring out. <laughs> Jeff Tweedy. <laughs> and he starts playing acoustic guitar. And the place goes wild. Now, I don't know. that I'm not a big fan of Wilco, but I, I kind of remember what you said. But the fact that he walks on stage with just the guitar, and I think his son was with him. I think his son plays drums, by the way, right? Yeah, Spencer Tweedy. He's a great drummer. Yeah, so that for me was, man, this is, this is a terrific podcast. because they And they do this often. They have a main guest they introduce, and it's all part of their shtick. Mm-hmm. And then he brings somebody else who has an attraction to the area, or whatever. And they brought out Jeff Tweedy, and it was it was amazing. Yeah, he he is um, he's a great songwriter. And uh, when you strip everything back to an acoustic guitar and some words, and it's just part of the folk tradition at the end of the day. But Jeff's songs, they they really, like you were saying, they they touched me deep. Right. And right. I, I I had to create after that. I had to write songs. It wasn't like oh I'm gonna try this. It was like. I want to be a songwriter, and my life has had a singular focus ever since. And, um, you know, for better or worse, I think uh, it's it's been one of the great joys of my life is, has been writing songs and connecting with other people. So you do solo stuff, but you have a new group, correct? Tell us about them. Yeah, so we're called uh, the Hillside Airmen, and uh, the, the full band name is Pete Mancini and the Hillside Airmen. And it's been a revolving door, and we've had a lot of musicians come and go. But um, this current lineup has been a lot of fun, and we've played some great shows. Over the summer, we got a chance to, uh, um, you know, we played Eisenhower Park, which was one of the biggest shows we ever played. It's a great venue because you can sit on the hill and it slopes up. Yeah. It I was, mean, it's really nice. Just, I've been there. You can just sit outside and just have a good time, listen to the music. It was great. And um, we've, uh, we opened for Los Lobos, um, Cracker. So it's been a great summer. And, uh, yeah, just been... Really enjoying the band and uh, playing solo, and um, you know, it's been uh, that's been great too. You know, because I've met so many great people through music, and um, you know, that's that's another one of the, you know, I'll call it a, a benefit, but you know, one of the great joys of playing music is the people you meet and right. the people you connect with. And so I think I've asked you this question before, but I'll ask it again. So it's like. Three o'clock in the morning, you come back from a gig, you're still kind of up because that's what happens after a performance. Absolutely. And who would you listen to to kind of just bring yourself back or inspire you to do what you do? Well, um, when I got back from uh, Atlanta and, uh, you know, had some time to kill, I, I put on the band. You know, we just lost Robbie Robertson. Oh, yeah. And uh, I put on um, Northern Light, Southern Cross, which is one of my favorite records. And Acadian Driftwood, I love that song. Um, and yeah, just it's just a seismic loss for music. Uh, Robbie Robertson, one of my favorite guitar players, one of my favorite songwriters, and the music he made with the band, you know, I, you know, just changed my life when I first heard it. It, it was life changing. So, yeah, you know, I put on, you know, whoever, whoever's in reach, you know, okay. but. All right. uh, you know, that was who I put on last time. And Do you still think the best way to go for purity and hear all the imperfections is vinyl? I love vinyl. And, uh, yeah, you know, 
Um, I think that's an interesting point because, you know, when I hear an album on vinyl, as opposed to some CDs that were, you know, maybe from the 90s or 80s or something, when you put something on vinyl, it's like, oh, I, I never heard that part before. Right. Like I was listening to um, Los Lobos. Uh, I got their record on vinyl. And yeah, I heard things I didn't hear on the CD version. Maybe that's because of the sound system in my car or something. But same thing with Jason Isbell. His his record Southeastern was yeah. was you know a masterful record. And you know when I listened to it on vinyl, I was like, oh, there's a there's a drum like mixed in the background of this song, uh, "Cover Me Up," and I never heard it before. But once you listen on vinyl, it's it's you're getting the full spectrum. So I'm not really an audiophile. I know. You know, you could get technical with the lossless files and everything. But for me, my favorite is vinyl. And I love CDs. I still listen to CDs in the car. I'm never giving them up. Good I don't care. You. I don't care what happens with technology. You cannot take my CDs from me. <laughs> so let's reset. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast off of Periscope. My guest is singer-songwriter Pete Mancini. I want to go back to the band for a second. So I used to go to a lot of concerts, a lot of concerts. And they were a lot cheaper back in the day, quite honestly. Oh, uh, yep. yep. So I used to go to the Island Garden, which is now a place to play basketball because my daughter played numerous games when she was in AAU basketball. So I know that facility very well. And they had a professional basketball team. They had the forerunner of the, of the Brooklyn Nets used to play there too. Hmm. And I went there because Bob Dylan was there. That's awesome. In Island Garden. And backing him up, not named at the time, were the band. Now, I put this in context. He had just come back from Newport where he had gone for the first time electric and people did not like it. That's pretty incredible you got to see that show. So I got to see the show. He did his acoustic and then he did the band. And, you know, Big Pink is one of the greatest albums of all time. It really is. It really is. And um, Big Pink, the self-titled record, right. those ones are, those were the, the life-changing records for me then and then you know of course you have the last waltz i love the movie the movie's the doc, great the doc there's a lot of controversy you know the controversy over the doc um, too much time spent on robbie yep yeah and you know there's a lot of unfortunately controversy within the band's ranks and um i'm not so sure if if all that really matters anymore it doesn't you know? it doesn't matter because we still have the music and that's what lives forever you know right business things and you know people taking sides you know right now all that matters is that we still have the music so all right that's the magic word uh, this is like groucho Marx. the duck comes down you said the magic word you bet your life uh let's go let's kind of go out with madison avenue blues if you don't mind sure thing gold watches and designer clothes a syndicated TV show Silver spoon and drinking hand A rented room in the promised land Fitted suits head home from work Spend their weekends getting their money's worth Stranded out here on the avenue What a drag it is to catch a glimpse of you Idle hands, a broken heart, a breakdown, a brand new start. It's the modern world, and there's nothing that you can do. 
Thank you, James Wolfe. Thank you, Pete Mancini. Life goes on. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tired.